Hey, everybody, this is Tim Heidecker. You're listening to episode eight of Please, Please Let It Be, the podcast where we go through every Beatles album, starting with Please, Please Me, all the way to their final album, Let It Be. Uh, with me is Eric Natornicola, as always, who is uh, helping me digest and dissect all the amazing music and the stories and the rumors and the technology behind all these groundbreaking albums. Eric, uh, good to see you. How are you holding up? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on again. We have uh, we have two guests. I'm going to quickly introduce the first guest, um, get through that as quick as possible. It is a friend of ours um, and one of the a great, you know, a, a titan in comedy, a legend. If you're if you're a fan of um, television, Mr. John Levenstein is with us. Thank you guys for having me. And John, we love to gab. We love to talk music. We love to talk about all sorts of things, so we were happy to invite you. I don't really know if you're like a Beatles fan the way we are. Not as much as you guys, but I am a big fan. Like I'm not as knowledgeable as you guys, but we did have some Twitter conversations early on about this, and my contribution to the conversation is mainly introducing my friend who was there. Yes, you're, you. we reached out to, to you, John, said, do you want to do the show? Just because we like to talk to you. And you said, well, you know what I could do? What I could bring to the table is I could bring you a, a very special guest that you're not going to believe. You didn't say that, but essentially it's the way we felt. You are here to introduce our very special guest. And do you want to introduce him or should I? Because my sure, show, my old, my old friend, my old boss, a uh, music pioneer, video pioneer, a sweetheart from Central California, Michael Nesmith. Michael Nesmith, you are now part of podcast history as you are my guest on Please, Please Let It Be. What an honor to have uh, from the Monkees and many other things, Mr. Michael Nesmith. Thank you for being here, sir. It's like Whopper Room. I'm, I'm thinking this is... This is a good time. Yeah. Is, is this a man cave? We, this is my, the, where I am. Yeah. I'm in my little, I'm in my garage that I've converted into a studio to a home studio. I do music here. I do uh, whatever I need. You know, I get away from my chill, my I have, uh, two kids, three and six. So I, I'm hiding down here most, most days, especially during the pandemic. I, I was uh, a, a mechanic, hobbyist, hot rod builder, racer. And uh, I would all the way through up and through the monkeys. I was constantly racing uh, one thing or another. And then <clears throat> one time when Christian, my oldest boy, was 20 something, uh, he said, you know, I never went racing with you. And I felt some horrible loss. Oh, yeah. I really did. I thought, I, I said, God, Christian, that's come and gone. We can't ever do that. I suppose maybe that's way too weepy for this time. Are you saying that I'm wasting my time down here to, talking to you and I should be upstairs oh, playing I, with oh, my I, children? I'm not at all. <laughs> I, I could not be better use of your time. Yeah. And Michael, just just to reassure you, you know I never wanted to go racing with you, right? No, I don't know that. Okay, we never. I never wanted to. Okay. Right. Good. Well... <laughs> We we're here talking about the eighth album uh, by the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Probably, I mean, really, just so you know, uh, Michael, we are massive fans. But we're, this isn't a show just to like we love everything about the Beatles. You know, we're we're we've got some issues 
here and there. So just just to just to let you know, we're going to be somewhat. Especially, do you mean do you mean failings that you hear? I, in the I just I mean just kind of personal feelings about them. You know, <laughs> you know nothing. What like not, catch on now. Yeah. Not not that we're better than them, but you know. Uh, not to it's jump ahead, but when I'm 64, do I need to hear when I'm 64 again? No. Sorry. This is a constellation cast, I think. Um, I'm sorry, I was talking over myself. Uh, where, are, where, where were we? Well, I just wanted to warn you that Eric and I and you are welcome to, you know, lodge your complaints with the record if if you so desire to. Oh, We're talking okay. about what we like and what we don't like, yeah. and it, it all comes from a place of peace and love. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to be completely worthless because I grade all Beatles records at 100 plus. Really? Yeah. You should I, work for the AV Club. Yeah. Well, maybe I do and don't know it, but <laughs> it, was a, it was such a critical part of my life, um, all the way from the uh, Ed Sullivan appearance to uh, the first weekend with John and Cynthia. And it was, uh, you know, I, it's indelible. I, I think about it, not frequently, but I think about it. And, you know, it was a, it was a world changer, a mind changer, a life changer and everything. You know, uh, the, <clears throat> the, the simplicity of two guys sitting in one's living room while the other guy played the first one, some music. So, hey, yeah, this is what I've been doing all day in the yeah. studio. We call it uh, Sergeant Peppers and blah blah blah. And uh, does the bass sound too loud to you? And I think, holy fuck, what? what you, <laughs> just rearranged my musical reality and then asked me how the bass sounded. So I was awestruck, flummoxed, dumbstruck. I said nothing, and I was that way that whole time I was there. So. so I, Remember nothing. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna tr try to ask this, and I was trying to figure out the best way to ask it. But like, so you guys come onto the scene in late '66, and by the next, by early next year, you're hanging with the guys with the Beatles in London. That seems like that. That must have just been um, so such an out of body experience for you to travel so quickly from. I mean not really being known to suddenly you're hanging with uh, John Lennon. I mean, were you, I mean, like you're young and I guess you're just kind of rolling with it, but w were you able to appreciate that in the moment? I don't think I have the appreciation. I had the appreciation then that I have for it now. And as I look back on it now, uh, those, those troughs, if I can call them that of gratitude are deep. Yeah. Long and I, 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 it's something that uh, has shaped me. And I don't know what happens after we die, but I don't know that anything will happen to those memories. I mean, they're, yeah. uh, <clears throat> and they're, they're, I, I can't imagine what it must have, well, I guess I can in a way, must have been like to play at, you know, a stadium. But, <clears throat> but how cool I, is it that they were cool with you? I mean, yeah, how did that friendship that could have gone the other way, right? Those guys could have been could have been assholes to you. Well, we were we were in different media. Yeah, uh, we were television stars, which they uh, just acknowledged. Right. They were all television fans. Right. 
and you know a couple of their directly related star fan friends had come over to spend the weekend with them and uh so they were as as wiggly and giggly as we were (laughs) you guys were all like around the same age right like we were the same age i think mccartney and i are the same age and the same height still the same age (laughs) no one's aged faster than the other it's unbelievable when i'm never before well he's a little (laughs) i guess he's always going to be a little older than you being in the in the uk um so let's jump into this record so you were like you said you were a fan of these guys up you were a fan of these guys when they broke like everybody else you weren't some kind of cool hip hipster who was like f these guys f these this boy band you were like these guys rock right away well i was a san antonio college folk music music e uh student in drama and uh an orchestra or something right. like that. One of those nerds. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't speak or write or read music. And I, I didn't like band music and I couldn't march worth a shit. And right. it was, you know, one dreadful experience after another until I found the folk music guys. Right. The people in folk music clubs. And they were, you know, it wasn't, you know, <clears throat> Blind Willie, Jack, cripple it was the guys who kingston trio that kind of thing yeah right it was it was much more um whitewashed right sounded very very white too it wasn't awful but how people sat through an evening of it i'll never know (laughs) (laughs) with those cable knit sweaters and everything stop it (laughs) (laughs) yeah but but so the so then i want to hold your hand comes that's got to be like the first thing you hear from them and that doesn't sound like i'm just trying to imagine if you're a folky like do you hear that and if i was you know in high school or something in college and like let's say the backstreet boys comes out i'm like my first reaction is like you know f that a little bit but did you? I mean, maybe you don't. Maybe it took a little bit of warming up to. But was that's what you I lost your train of thought. Well, Back up. were they? Did did your first interaction with the Beatles feel like it was like a uh, a frivolous pop group for the girls, or was it something that you immediately responded to? Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! I, I um, I, I'm I'm hesitating a little bit because I don't want to speak for anyone but myself. But what I know of myself and the conversations that I had with Mickey and Peter and David was that we revered those guys, all of us, uniformly. Yeah. I mean, these were the finest purveyors of that kind of music, the greatest pop writers of our time. Uh, they were painting uh, images in uh, flames. Yeah. It was, um, uh, I, I don't know, I think because it hit television when it finally got to the to the viewer <clears throat> it it was palpable it hit you it raised the skin on your arms yeah did you move back <clears throat> the only other band or performer that ever did that for me came later not much was hendrix but the beatles were the first time i felt it and i felt it in the uh, shea stadium and a couple of times i saw them and <clears throat> It's that is uh, I think I, I've been hearing a, a phrase uh, around uh, a call that is um, uh, 
a felt presence as a description of something that may be spiritual. You can't see it, but you just know it's there. Right. And and, uh, that felt presence is amplified by impossible to conceive of astronomical magnitudes and, and takes over a room when you get four power, you know, or, or a factor of four. That The four of those guys, when they stepped out just in the view of the public, you felt that, you know, Space Force 3 or 4 or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> just like, what the hell just happened? But when they played and the music came out, you listen to their harmonies and the perfection with which they played with each other. Yeah. And, and, and <clears throat> resultantly with us, the audience, it was divine. Yeah. Absolutely heavenly. It was, uh, that's, you, you, and I just kept looking at Phyllis, my wife at the time, and people who were around, and, and, and I said, this is it. This is what it's supposed to be. And sitting there at that time, I could not, in my wildest dreams, imagine doing what the, the four of us are doing right now. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> we're not breaking too much ground, but... Um, let's get into the album. Okay. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I, there's so much I want to ask you about, but you, you were over there before it came out. Were you there for one of the sessions? I can't remember what the, what the story is here with this particular record. All of the above, yeah. So you were, you were, were you at like the famous day in the life session with all the, with like where it was the party? You were there. Yeah. Were you just in London doing shows or what were you doing over there? You know, I can't remember. I think that the show's sounds like as good a alibi as any. And I guess was it broadcast and over there? Like, was it broadcast all over? It was broadcast on the BBC or something. Like, where did the monkeys air? This is what the audience wants to know. Well, it was. It, it had full European clearances, so it was Sweden and Europe, and um, right. I mean. I'm, UK and the KK and RK and the PK. Right. And it was, uh, <clears throat> I think, South America, half a dozen of the com- countries in Europe. And um, uh, that's how you do it. You go worldwide with this stuff. Because then yeah, you just, you can go, you guys could go anywhere. <clears throat> yeah, so it would appear. <laughs> <laughs> well, not anymore, but <laughs> about six, four months ago, you could go anywhere. Um, yeah. Yeah, you guys. I should say, you guys were you and uh, Mickey were about were uh, were go, were on the were in the middle of playing shows, or what? What was what was going on when things started shutting down? You had some shows. Uh, you mean here recently? Yeah. As a result of this pandemic. Yeah. That was, Did you have to yeah. push things. <laughs> well, there was too much of an uproar when we started making noises about canceling. So we said, well, we'll just we'll just uh, postpone it. And that was almost instantly subscribed. So, yeah, right. so it was like, that's what people want to do. They want to be able to kind of move the schedule around to fit them. Right. Um, and so we we'll go back out. I mean, there's no question that we'll go ahead and finish up the tour. It's just not going to be in the same dates. Probably we'll be in the same places. Just won't be in the same dates, uh, times and stuff. And you guys will be in hazmat suits when you play as well. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, every time <laughs> I play together, we're, uh, you know, no, no contact possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, Sergeant, I, I want to help Michael set the stage. Yeah, because go I'm ahead. 
sure this has been made clear. You're a storyteller, John. You you take During the recording of Sergeant Pepper, Michael was staying with John Lennon and John Lennon would come home at the end of the day and play recordings for Michael and ask him to pass judgment on them, which Michael would refuse to do because Michael loved everything. And then Michael actually went to the session. That was the day in the life day, right, Michael? All of the above is true. Okay, I'm muting myself again, you guys. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, John, for clearing that up. Um, what would you do? I mean, who you? How, why would you remember this? What do you do during the day while they're recording? You're just sitting around John Lennon's mansion? Uh, well. <clears throat> Did you see Big Ben and uh, yeah, Harlan? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Give me a second. I'll, I'll, form, I'll form it up. It's, it's impossible for me to describe some of the great English characteristics in, in their full-orbed integrity. But they are the, the mannerisms and polite manner in company means way more than it does in the United States. Right. And that people have, people cultivate it so that they give off the aura of fine breeding and, you know, fine education and all of the other things. Even if they don't have the money, which is the foundation of it all, to go with it. <clears throat> so there's this, this kind of odd, very filmic overlay, which looks like, you know, a, a different film process in every party that you go to. In English society, and there's a there, it's something that rings <clears throat> um, ancient, and you know of the stones. I mean, it's not, not the Rolling Stones, right. <laughs> but not the class. No, and 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 it's it's a it's a strange it's a strange kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I, I've now lost I've now lost the train of well, thought. Well, you sound like you were treated treated very respectfully uh, right. while you were over there and yeah, it was, courteously. It was, it, and, and for me, John, it, he never said anything. I never said anything, but it, for me, it was love at first sight. You know, I thought, boy, this, this is, this, this can be a great friend. Right. I understand, you know, if you, if he found somebody like McCartney, how it would create a bond like that. Well, they were um, also such fans of America. They were such fans of American music uh, I mean, they just must have been thrilled to hang out with a guy from Texas. I mean, well, I think so, but I, I, you know, I felt in in their hands, I felt a little bit like you know a a, a chemical reagent that is in the hands of a master chemist. I right. Mean, it, they can kind of do whatever they want to, and it's fine with yeah. me. I'll do what <laughs> I do, and. Uh, and and I love you know I love playing with them and playing you know but it was all just kind of living room stuff and panky twanky tanky tanky all that stuff and it was uh, there was no real musicianship in in any of it right but what was there was a kind of the soul of a musician the soul of music the right. soul of things and. Uh, that's that's what I kept taking out of it, taking from it, and realizing. And when I think back on those times, those are the memories that I have, and that that are so precious to me and stay with me. They're so strong. That's Just beautiful. Right, in my face like that. So when you're there and you're around the, you know, they they come off of Revolver, 
they had I guess they had Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane had come out as singles. Um, is there the feeling? Is there the palpable feeling? Those are the first two songs in the session. Those are the first two songs, but they had come out while they were still recording the the album, I believe. Um, what, what, I think what, so, but they were originally intended to go on the record. Right. So they were originally supposed to be part of the Sgt. Peppers and on the label. They rushed it out. They released them as double A-sides, yeah. What, 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 what tracks are you talking about? Uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. Oh, well, I, I'm clearly not on the inside enough to know that. But I guess my question was, do you, when you're over there and they're recording that, is there a sense that the band is taking another big leap with the with the stuff they're doing? Or is it feeling like expected of them to be working at this level. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. I think it was probably the latter. Um, these guys were uh, unbelievable talents. Uh, their, their capacities and, and talents in, in all directions of thought was just celestial or of a time and you knew that then you felt that then it wasn't something that you've like that's just so fascinating to me because so much has been kind of lumped onto them through people well, like us going I, on about it but in yeah, the moment you feel yeah. that no you do feel it you feel it you feel it when you're with the big guns yeah there are very few people that have it uh you would think they would have it but they don't there's a posing quality and an inauthentic quality. Right. But when you're with the guys, what they're playing in their own mind is their own version of their own star spangled banner. They have something happening in their head that the ordinary sly Fox does not. Um, let's get into the record. We're just going to play, kind of play through the record and Eric and I will talk. If you want to talk, uh, you know, chime in. We start with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, obviously title track, John Levenstein. What does this song do to you emotionally? I wanted to say the song that does something for me emotionally is Penny Lane, and it's a shame it's okay. not on the album. Well, that's fine. We can talk about Martin, the singles. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band doesn't do that much for me, but I remember hearing Penny Lane before the album came out, and it's such so of a piece with those recording sessions, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean they were supposed to be on the record, and I think when I'm 64, and and I forget if it's uh, fixing a hole or Good Morning, Good Morning, they were 
written and recorded to replace those two songs on the record. And then I'm 64. Again, before I mute myself, Michael, here's my problem with giving every Beatles song a 100 yeah. is you leave yourself no room to operate. <laughs> yeah. Like you give when I'm 64 and Michelle a 100 and then what do you do for the other songs? 120? <clears throat> no, no. You, you shift spectra and you go to color. <laughs> <laughs> That's Natural, naturally. Come on, my, come on. Uh, when I'm 64 is black and white then, I presume. <laughs> That's a good well, idea. we we've been charting. We'll get. Let's just do this in order. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I think it's a rocker. It rocks. You know, it's got a little bit. It's heavy. You can hear it. You could hear like I know you mentioned Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix comes out like and plays this. He plays like a really heavy version of uh, of Sergeant Pepper's the theme song. But it is kind of like a nothing. It's kind of a novelty song. It's a novelty song. And there's sort of the frame. It's a frame of this concept record, and it's. It's kind of filled with like those sort of like rock and roll, uh, pla like stage platitudes of like, hello, everybody, here we are. And now someone's going to sing a song like, you know, the kind of like meaningless banter at the beginning of a rock show. Yeah, that doesn't really exist. But doesn't no, do a lot for no, me. I no, I don't guess I know what you mean. Could you explain it better? <laughs> <laughs> you never had something like that, did you, that you could rely on to start a show? <laughs> That's funny. Um that did not occur to me at all until you just started going down that road. What um, was the iconography? Like the marching band, the military, like was it made up by them? Was it something that existed? Why was that what was interesting to them? It was, I, I don't know. It, there was the poster in John's, uh, you know, the houses of the 20s, the big mansions of the 20s that they had this, open air space porch that was surrounded yeah. by screen. like an we indoor had, garden oh, kind of thing yeah yeah the what like an indoor garden kind of thing yeah. like like a uh, mud a room like yeah yeah rattan everywhere wicker and uh, all sort of white and and so forth well, he had one and in that was a, an upright piano that was in uh the middle of disassembly huh and there were uh, bottles of opened and unopened fingernail polish and bottles of um and it might have been and tubes of acrylic and stuff around <clears throat> and a jar full of paintbrushes and so forth and he had the frontispiece off of the piano and he was painting each key a different color huh inside the piano very mild and shit. it was no spectrum to it there wasn't anything like oh it's a, that's look, right. no, no rhyme or reason to it <clears throat> no it well the rhyme or reason was lucy in the sky right <laughs> so it's the beginning of this very psychedelic <laughs> sort of aesthetic visual aesthetic that they started well, to it, that was it into. it was it was psychedelic art and what? there was nothing else to explain it and i'm telling you guys because i i'm i'm praying that you say yeah yeah that's it man that was it because it really was. I was standing there in the middle of the psychedelic fire that was coming up around my feet and creating this piano in front of me, which uh, John Lennon was playing Sergeant Pepper's on. And, uh, you know, oh, really? Could you pass the spam? <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but, John, you're talking about like the, that sort of, that military Edwardian uh, yeah. turn of the century so brass band kind of thing. 
But it was very colorful. So was that just all part of the psychedelia, psychedelia Michael? The outfits? No, well, the, uh, once you look at the album cover, you begin to understand the level of work. And the little bit of time that I was there, that work was going on around me. You know, they were r- rushing costumes here and there and stuff. But <clears throat> I never got a, a decent look at any ethos or any kind of you know dynamic that was going on. Right in the middle of it. I don't know that it was ever anything other than a circus poster. Yeah. And it was just one that hung in John's garden wall. Um, that, so that, so then we'll move on to, I think we, Eric and I were talking earlier, this is our favorite Ringo song. I mean, he didn't write it, but with a little help from my friends is a great song, great track, great sounding track. Yeah. Well, it's endemic as well. Yeah. Those rock anthems. Oh man, everybody can sing along to this. <clears throat> um, great bass playing on this. Eric, talk to us about the bass in this song, could you? So this for this song, it, I think it's maybe my favorite bass boom, tone boom, boom. Sorry, that I'm I've ever heard the... McCartney do it. And McCart- I, I love Paul McCartney's tone, and I think this is the peak of his bass tone. It's round. It's like it punches. It's it's rubbery it's so good and uh, it's just one of my favorite bass tones from him and also a great bass line is he playing a rickenbacker is that what he's doing this is his rickenbacker 4001 yeah and he's recording he's overdubbing this after this after the rhythm track yeah that was a technique that he started doing on revolver i think and and and, whoops sorry about that i've got a little chord issue so yeah so on, on this record in particular he would record his bass lines last uh, to just make sure that they were, he could put as much attention into them as possible. So he would play a lot of piano and guitar on the on the backing track, and then go in and overdub. They'd save a channel on the four track for his bass at the very end. How how and unheard it, of it, it really shows that I think I think this this album has his best best bass playing in my opinion. It's, it's my favorite bass lines of his are on this album. Um, Mike. How uh, aware were you that like these guys are taking more time on these records than than people are used to on these kind of rock records? Like nobody, like a lot of most people didn't have that kind of luxury, right? To like spend that much well, time in the studio. You know, I, I um, we uh, we had John and I had a couple of conversations of no particular depth and nothing really to report about what Sergeant Pepper's was it was a you know is that it was a it was an excursion and exploratory ex- exploration of new territory right it was a, a creative expansion it was a way for them to leave the personas of themselves of the beatles with right and, and sort of like it was that but i don't think that that move would have been made that consciously I, I, and i think it happened but it didn't happen by design. It happened by uh, uh, the force of art. Right. Um, and they almost had to. There were where was where like they something had to to change for them uh, to for them to keep wanting to to do it. I guess like you have to kind of mix things up, or you get pretty stale and pretty bored and and yep. not very creative, right? Yes. 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 You're right. And and it the, the things did not change. <clears throat> and it did stop. It was it stopped. Right. Um, 
I think, Tim, when I when I texted you guys about a little help from my friends, I think my issue with that song was I read an article about it, about how everyone pulled together to root Ringo on <laughs> yeah, to that last high note <laughs> before, going back, before going back and listening to the song for the first time in years. And after reading the article, that last high note is not that impressive. All right, let me play it. So we it can, is for Ringo, though. Let me... Oh. Hold on. Let me get to that part. I think John, I think what's hard about that is that the the chords going under that note are are changing in a way that make it hard to hold that note. Go Ringo, you can do it Ringo. Hey! John, John, can you can you do that note for us? John. No way. Yeah, yeah John, you do that. Oh, note. okay. Oh, oh, all of a sudden. Ronnie, Ronnie, I think he's going to do it. It looks like he's going to do it. Come on. He's going to make it the whole way. <laughs> we won. Ronnie, we won the horse. <laughs> 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 Listen to that bass line, though. I mean, that's, that's really nice. tasty stuff. Yeah. All right. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. This song for me is the what got me, what really turned me on to the Beatles as a kid, in a way, because my dad had the, the, the greatest hits collection on cassette. And. I wasn't really into the Beatles. I didn't know who they were, but he would play it. And when this song came on, me and my sister thought it was a joke. We like we would close our nose and be like, "Picture yourself," you know, like we're like, "What the hell is this?" But something about it captivated me and made me want to keep listening. And you know, in general, this record is the one where I remember very distinctly. You know, this I guess will date me for Eric for you making me feel old and for. John and Mike making me feel young, but I, when the CD for this came out, I was like, I have, well, when CDs came out, I was like, I got to go get Sergeant Peppers to play on the CD player. Cause that's how the, that's the ultimate test of what a record should sound like as a, you know, a 12 year old boy. That was my idea, but losing this guy was not I, for me. What? That doesn't date you at all for me. I mean, I, I had the same experience okay, with, when sorry. CDs came out. Sorry. I'm I think sorry. it's very relatable. I also love this this one as a kid too. I think this had a really big impact on me because I don't think it just didn't sound like any of the other songs that I was listening to. You know, it's so different from a production standpoint. This is John Lennon as the fan of Lewis Carroll, the surrealism, the imagery. Obviously, Mike, you're sitting in his in his uh, sunroom, seeing some of the psychedelic influences weave away into his art and into his life. Uh, anybody. Somebody the the story behind the the title apparently comes from Julian, his son, who drew a picture, went in and showed him. How much? What's the, let's take a vote. Who thinks they were trying to be clever and put LSD on on the record? Is is there any? You think that John? Yes. He insists that it was a coincidence. Mike. No, I know from John's mouth to my ears that it was not a reference to LSD. It was a reference to a crayon picture that was sitting on John's lap that his daughter had drawn, I think with Son. a help of a or two. 
Yeah, that's what I. F- I, I don't think I they're... believe. I believe John you're and Mike not, and Michael. Wait, you're not hearing my story. I'm talking Oops. about. John, I'm talking about John's daughter. So John's son, Julian. You mean? No. <laughs> Wait. Start again. Wait. What? <laughs> Is there a daughter we don't know about? Didn't I get your attention? Yeah. There's a daughter out there. <laughs> <laughs> An illegitimate Lenin daughter that we don't know about? <coughs> no, it's way too inside. Okay. Alone. But he, the Beatles, you, John Levenstein, you think that, that they're being clever and winky with the LSD, Lucy. Well, and the... another, I can't separate from this other question because I was a kid when it came out. And like other kids, I was eight when it came out. We played the record forwards and backwards and we looked for Paula's dead clues. So, like, in that album, in Magical Mystery Tour, it seemed like the Beatles were burying all kinds of clues in their recordings, right? Yeah. And so we were geared to look for clues, and it seemed like they wanted us to look for clues. So when we found things that weren't there, I think that they have to take some of the responsibility for that because they were playing games and I was a child playing along. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Not uh, guilty. <laughs> now, this is, I, uh, Eric, this is your favorite song on the record, Getting Better. Getting Better. Yeah, well, it's a tie with Day in the Life. Whoo, look at those guitars. How cool is this song? What, what, like, what does this even sound like to you guys that's not the Beatles? It's so it's so, it's so singular to them. The production on this record is so amazing. That was their reach for the Beach Boys. That was their Beach Boys nod, right? A little bit. Yeah, reach for the Beach Boys. I mean, you know, um, the way John talked about it, there was a real mutual admiration society, and they had been trying for a while to get a. Beach Boys thing. They thought Paperback Writer was going to do it for them. Right. And then this uh, was, well, if you listen to the background, it's it's like the Beach Boys doing it. But this was all the Beach Boys, the whole Beach Boys period that they were in. What was your relationship with the Beach Boys? Did you guys have a relationship with them at all? No, I was, uh, I had worked with Bruce Johnson when I first got out to L.A., made friends with him and sort of hung in his circles. And when he spun off uh, to do the Beach Boys, I tagged along a couple of dates, and then uh, that was that was the end of it. That, that was never my scene. Yeah. I would have yeah, stayed the, away from those guys. They seemed like trouble. You know, on the one end, Brian Wilson, you know, he's got issues, and then Mike Love doesn't – he seems like a, you know, problem. Not a fun hang. And then, you're, then, then the next thing you know, you're hanging out with Charles Manson. You don't want to be hanging out with Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a lot of places enough to go there. Yeah. Um, Eric, anything else you want to say about getting better? Because it is your favorite song on the record, tied with the I day. I just wanted in the life. to break down a couple of the parts. It's so oh, fun. Ahead, you, got these, you got this cool bass line. It's like, and then it's uh, it's got this like walking. Very cool, very cool. Some great drumming from Ringo on it. Now we also uh, you have the songwriting dynamic of of uh, 
John and Paul on, on full display here, according to them, which is you have Paul writing pretty much the 90% of this psalm, but according to Paul, John's contribution is it can't get no worse, right? It can't get much worse as the reply yeah. to it's getting better, which is... It's a little bit of sour to the sweet. Yeah, it adds a, a little sort of sardonic. Like the, best, the best of those two as co-writers, right? Absolutely. And again, if there is an influence of John writing lyrics here, you have sort of this pretty dark verse about, I used to be cruel to my woman. I hit her, <laughs> kept her apart yeah. from the ones that she loved. Like I, I always thought it was interesting that during that part, the mix kind of shifts more towards John's vocal and away from Paul's as if Paul's subconsciously saying like, all right, this is John's. That's funny. <laughs> this is John speaking here. This is not me. You know, the one thing... As Here's we, something I wondered, Michael, because uh, it seems like the Beatles bantered a lot. Were they were they mean? Were they ever mean when they would banter, or was I, it lighthearted? I never saw them be mean to a soul. Interesting. And, um, especially each other. There was great. Uh, I don't know what the word is, but it was decorum of a kind of a type, you know, and a recognition uh, the the other musicians. Clapton and, and uh, you know, those guys right. uh, <clears throat> that traveled as the as, as a like a posse circles around the main writer. They all were there in adoration of the Beatles. Right. And they would part when the Beatles would go through a door. The Beatles would not separate. They would walk in fours like that. And they were nice to each other in your experience. They were extremely cordial and convivial and uh, and wicked smart and funny. Well, there's a great video. John, I just I just retweeted it earlier today, but there's this a video. It's them doing a um, one of those, you know, uh, TV performances where they're kind of lip syncing along with it um, to a backing track. And they're doing We Can Work It Out. And I don't know if they might have had a little pot or whatever, but John and John is making Paul laugh. And it is the most, it's the most, it's the cutest, most endearing video because they can't control themselves. They're cracking each other up. And, you know, it's like 65 or something, six, you know, and they just seem to just be the biggest fans of themselves, of each other. I, not I was going to say, I just watched them doing help together. Yeah. And what I was struck by was that when John was singing, Paul was very generous in his react, his facial reactions to John singing when they're singing together. Very yeah. generous. Yeah, they were fa- I mean, you see it too when, when John and Paul are doing in their live shows. You see John and Paul singing together. You see George and he's kind of singing along in a way that you do when you're enjoying the song and you're like supporting your friends and you're there, uh, you know, backing them up. So that's cool to hear. I mean, listen, Mike, you're our primary source uh, that we could, we could never have imagined getting this kind of access. Uh, uh, so we appreciate it. <laughs> if you get a chance to read uh, Infinite Tuesday, do, because I, I lay all this out in there. One of the things we haven't talked about, and I don't think I can. Oh, good. I don't, do it justice was the, the cultural milieu. It was a completely different, utterly unique spot in all the world. Yeah, in the sixties, and it's it's um, I can't describe it. I've heard people who talked about Paris in the twenties, yeah, in first person, 
And I thought, gosh, I would have loved to have been there. You know, the left bank and the whole thing that's going on yeah. with jazz and, and just the romance of it. And <clears throat> I realized it could never happen for me. And, and when it did, when there was a, a sense of this music will live forever and so will these times. This is a, this is a, a generation shift and it's a, it's a place into something else. It's unforgettable. You'll never, you'll never lose it. And so I just, it's just sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. Yeah. Keep your hands inside the car at all times. And <laughs> that's what I did. And it was just like that. I was just uh, like a little dog with my tongue hung out the window, but I was noticing maybe like the little dog that these guys were not manic in any sense. They were droll and they were clever and they were just whatever pace the room was in, they were on that pace. Um, well, and the masters, they were masters. I can't describe it any better than that. I know I sound like this adoring. No, it's you know, so great. I mean, fan, but that's the way I felt. <laughs> I still do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels very earned. It feels like they earned your admiration. It didn't, it's not, yeah. you know, um, fixing, Before we move on. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just want to say the, like the, the, um, the guitars in this are so cool and that they, there's this like repeated kind of like high G that acts as a pedal. So like in the verses, it's like with the G is still in the, in the root note of the, of the C and the G. But then when, when you go to the verb and to the chorus, the progression is really cool. Cause it's like, uh, Oh yeah. It stays there. The G's. So yeah, so it's like, even though the G has left the chords. It's in the other guitar. It's just a very cool, like, upward moving progression with that pedal. That's it almost sounds like a busy key. signal that's going on. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Fixing a hole. Now, this is obviously about heroin and doing heroin with needles, right? I mean, obviously. No, no I'm just kidding. That doesn't that doesn't doesn't make it never made any sense to me. Let's hear a little bit of it. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it will go. This really feels like the Beatlesque sound is very present here. The harpsichord, like if you're going to do a parody of a Beatles mid-60s swing, like London swinging 60s kind of sound, you get the harpsichord sound up, right? I well, think McCartney was fond of it, right? The harpsichord? I don't know what you mean by the harpsichord. I don't hear yeah, the harpsichord. Yeah, because he's, he's got the clavichord on... That's not a harpsichord that's playing? It might playing? not be coming through very well on the Zoom. Oh. It might be a little mushy on the Zoom. Oh, I see. Yeah, I think it's a harpsichord, right? If you guys can hear. It could be like a tack piano or something. That's Paul McCartney singing, right? Yeah. Yeah. What strikes me about that song is it seems like Paul McCartney singing like John Lennon. Uh-oh. Yeah, well, he does this. He he does this like um, Lennon. He can do this Lennon impression that he does sometimes. Like you hear it on um, on Love Me Do when he sing when he says Love Me Do. He's like doing this kind of like Lennon impression to sound to blend better with him, and it's he, he does it really well. It's like a 
He does it when he harmonizes too. Um, I don't. You know, it's not one of my favorite Beatles songs, "Fixing a Hole," but it serves. It creates a nice texture and atmosphere for the record. If someone told you it was his favorite Beatles song, what would you think of that person? <laughs> Be weird. I know. I know someone who they said their mom's favorite Beatles song was "The Fool on the Hill." Well, that's a popular. That's a hit. That was a hit. But it's still an odd choice. What if, if John? Do you think there's anybody out there who says I hate the Beatles, but I love that song "Fixing a Hole"? <laughs> Maybe I hate all their songs except that one. <clears throat> I want to. I I wanted to do a sketch, John, where it's Sergeant Pepper's. So they they find out that there is a Sergeant Pepper out there, that from like the 1800s or something, and he was this awful, you know, he like slaughtered. Zulu, a Zulu tribe or something like he's a British general that they find what found was just this absolutely reprehensible imperial general. And so the Beatles have to decide, you know, because now Sergeant Pepper has gotten canceled in culture. So they they re-release Sergeant Pepper's under a new name. They have to come up with Admiral Spice something because the, the name Sergeant Pepper has become so so toxic. Did you did you take it far enough to write songs? No. All I've done is talk about it with my friends. Um all right, fixing a hole leads into I think one of my favorite Paul McCartney songs ever, She's Leaving Home. It's a beauty. Do you have an issue with this, John? Mike? I love it. It's beautiful. It's a great story. This feels like, um, you know, we're on a journey with Paul McCartney now. He's kind of taking over the band. I don't know if, Mike, you could sense this at all at the time. Was there a sense that Paul was contributing more to this group at this point? There was a kind of power struggle happening within the group? Well, I never got the slightest bit of friction sensed the slightest bit of friction from between any of the boys right they and uh, even uh, the, the the exchange of dialogue power place and everything and position between the four of them was just seamless it was like a, a watching a beautiful dance wow they were, they were as good in those social graces as they were in their musical ones so <coughs> they first of all they never discussed in front of me anything the slightest bit controversial. Right. This would have been, you know, off. Right. Um, and second of all, the great quest was upon all of us, including the Beatles, which was uh, we have to we have to have the biggest best-selling album of all time. Right. The best music in the world. This is our time. We have to do it. Yeah, the pressure was on, right? The well, pressure was kind of on, I think. I mean, I think it was less pressure than it was... Uh, uh, Aspiration. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, heard no. Paul, I heard Paul Simon talk about that when, it, when, like, when they were like Bridge Over Troubled Waters or, or uh, The Boxer... There was this sense of like, what did the Beatles just do? We got to do something that's bigger, and then we have to. We're all kind of like playing off each other at, for like very uh, to you know to make a to have a, a make a huge splash. Yeah, creatively, that, but commercially too. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, you're that's that's right. That was everywhere present. It was like, you know, being at the at the Olympics. You're just you know, walking down the street. You never knew who was running for their 10th gold medal or just, you know, running for their first bronze. Right. And <clears throat> but they were all these magnificent are these magnificent animals. I you know, I <laughs> um it's a little bit of an embarrassment, but not that much. Uh, when I was at the day in the life session, Mick and, uh, <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> God damn it. Uh, Mick and, uh, <coughs> Marianne came and, uh, this is, this is Jagger and faithful. If you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> and I looked up and she came in the door. I think she was just in front of Mick and he peeled off. And she was just left alone, and she was walking towards me, and I was standing alone. <coughs> and I thought, oh, my God, who the fuck is this? This is the most gorgeous creature I've ever seen in my life. This is what every rock and roll song was about. Right. And then somebody from who knows where, some ghost of, of uh, rock and roll sessions past, said, that's Mary Ann Faithful. Uh, well, fuck you, of course. <laughs> I'm an idiot I am. You know, embarrassed. Uh, Smurring faithful, you know. Yes. Yes. You're, yeah, you're like, you're like, hey, you know who's pretty? Yeah. You must have towered over, you must have towered over these guys. You must have, because all these British, like, especially the Rolling Stones, they're like tiny guys. They're all five four. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I kid, I kid, I kid. Uh, I, uh, oh, sorry, Michael. Well, I, I mean, I've been told that on the television, the television ensemble of us uh, in a television camera, it makes me look imperiously tall, and I wasn't. Uh, <clears throat> Peter and I were nearly the same height. He was you know, a couple of inches shorter. Went downstairs pretty drastically today. <laughs> It was, it was all carefully planned. Yeah. I, was, I was happy to go along with it. Really. Uh, Tim, Tim, here's the thing about Paul taking over the band. From my experience at the time and from most fans' experience at the time, no one had any idea which Lennon and McCartney songs were written by Lennon and which were written by McCartney. So it probably made it easier for John that they were all labeled Lennon McCartney songs. Yeah. Right. Well, what but, we were noticing. Could you tell the difference? You could tell the difference in who sang, or some of it's yeah, so hard to tell. Who sang, but as far as the composition went, it right. was not common knowledge to the public that they were really divided up towards the end, as far as who wrote what. Well, right. uh, you know, we've been going through this these albums and and sort of really analyzing all the songs. And what struck us as we as we kind of worked through that that sort of mid period of like Beatles for Sale, Help, uh, Rubber Soul. Um, was John was writing was first of all the records were mostly John songs or at least where Especially he was hard singing. Days night and hard and days a hard night, night in particular and a hard days night included in this where there were a lot of John singing a lot of very personal confessional songs that you know some of them might have just been kind of girl meets boy songs but there was you could tell there was like some uh, some issues with you know like jealousy or um, you know, mostly jealousy, but sort of these kind of 
psych, you know, you could get a little glimpse into his psychology and they got more and more personal help. Of course, is very, very personal. Um, like I'm a loser. All these songs are like, I in don't want to spell life. Part, in my life. And then on this record, it just seems to go away. Like there, this is obviously he's maybe he said all he's wanted to say about that. He's writing much more sort of like reporting or writing about sort of from a more of surreal place. And, and he's just not writing as much of the music coming out, which, you know, maybe it was exhaustion or maybe it was the psychedelics he was doing that kind of changed his perspective or his, his priorities. And, but you see, there's like almost no Paul on, what was it that we were saying? There was no Paul on, on uh, hard days night. I mean, so I mean, help is help is an especially great album for John too. I wonder also, like I could imagine at that point, it's like if he and Paul were still tight, and Paul was coming up with one great song after another. Yeah, John might have really appreciate it. You yeah. know, like who, who yeah, knows? take over, dude. You drive for a little bit. I'll take some some acid. Take a nap in the back. Take a nap in the back. <laughs> Hang out with Mike Nesmith. He's right, just, like I could imagine that being like a really pleasant exchange at a certain point in the partnership. Yeah. But John, I mean, he's got, I mean, so, so let's, let's work into, uh, benefit for the Mr. Kite, a uh, benefit being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, which I believe is the poster that, uh, Mike saw in the sunroom as far oh, as I yeah. know. Right. Which essentially is all the lyrics derived from that. So John, this is something you listen to often or. Imagine driving around town with this blasting on, out of your stereo, <laughs> pulling up to your house and your neighbors here. You just—that's the joke you made about piggies, right? This is piggies from the White Album. Like, <laughs> I think about it with a lot of these songs. Yeah. So, incredible innovation, incredible creativity, incredible—you know—use of the studio, building imagery through sound. Song is kind of, eh, some not. Some, I, I think it's a production masterpiece. Thank that, you. Thank and you. It's, uh, <laughs> and it's and uh, it's it's George Martin plays like four or five different or types of organs in this. He's like he's. I didn't know there were four or five of, different kinds of organs. Yeah, and I think that um, I think Lennon sort of gave him carte blanche to sort of run wild with the production, and he just said like, make it sound like a circus. I want to smell the sawdust. I want to smell the sawdust. I want to smell the sawdust. I want to smell <laughs> the sawdust. And and George really nailed it. I mean. It, it really has a cool carnival kind of feel to it. Um, a certain, certainly a song of its time. It feels very psychedelic and trippy and must have freaked people. It kind of, it's kind of scary towards the end of it, right? Yeah, there's that sort of like organ collage. Well, it's circus, but also music hall, you know, like the music hall stuff. I don't relate to that tradition of the Beatles as much. What's what's your experience of it, Michael? Was that like a mainly a piano song? Which what, the one you're about to play, or the one the one that we just played? The, for benefit, the benefit of Mr. Kite. Play. What do you mean a piano song? Like a Billy Joel song? As far as how it was composed, like what uh, do you think the genesis of it was? Well, you know, I I sat down there. He played it for me live in that room, and uh, it it looked to me just like him playing the piano at a party. Right, and, and I, I, I'm not sure I'm on the page you're on, John. I don't know what you mean. Oh, so you, but you did originally hear it like as a solo piano song, then. 
yeah, I said, what are you working on? He, and <clears throat> he pointed at the poster. And I said, what's this? He said, well, it's a theme we thought of. I don't know whether it's going to work or not, blah, blah. And then <clears throat> a couple of more tokes. And then we were sitting <laughs> side, side by side. And what the hell are you doing here? This is, I'm, I, I'm getting high. I'm LSD and painting my piano. He never said that out loud. Yeah, yeah. It was like that. And <clears throat> and then it was uh, off to the races. Let's, let's go listen to some music. What, do you, what are we going to listen to? Well, I got something I brought home from the studio. And it was, um, oh man, what was it? It'll take me a while to remember it. But anyway, it was, it was astounding. Just absolutely astounding. And like everybody who hears Sgt. Peppers for the first time, having never heard anything but music from the... Uh, uh, 60s 50s and 40s <clears throat> yeah how cool up. is it to be able to hear something in real time and go oh this is as good as i was hoping it was going to be right well that, that's indescribably cool that's the holy grail that's what we're all we're working for that's why i sit around loaded all day and staring at passing trucks you know what i mean it's it's like oh maybe it's in there i had this feeling uh, this weekend because there was a huge hype or there's a lot of hype online about this new Fiona Apple record. And I go, all right, let me, let me put it on. I'll put my headphones on. And people are saying it's, you know, it's like breathtaking, all this stuff. I put it on and I was, I was blown away. I was like, cool, this is great. And people said it was great. And it is. And it, I feel it like I, it wasn't like, usually you just kind of get disappointed by when people say stuff's great, but um, let's see. Should we go into George land? We have not. George has been. Where's George on this record, everybody? Where's George? Where he's is not, George? He's not doing a lot of the lead guitar. Paul's <laughs> taking over a lot of the lead guitar. And so where is he? He's, I think he was in the early stage of the disease, wasn't he? I, I didn't see him around much. I ran into him once when we all went to dinner. <clears throat> he was driving a Radford Mini Cooper. I don't know whether you ever seen one of those things or not, but they're just a Mini Cooper. Uh-huh. Polished out like a Rolls Royce. And they're just uncanny. Oh. They're gorgeous. So I said, I got to have one of those. <laughs> <clears throat> and he took me to the Radford plant and I bought it on the spot, put all the stuff on it and everything. And, but that's what we shared because he was a car nut. Yeah, he was a. Big... That, Michael, but I think in some ways, even though John was your friend, you and George have the most in common because you also both funded comedy starting in the 70s. You're so right. I mean, our lives. George and my life parallels each other's in a way that n none of the other guys are member of the rock um, royalty ever. Not, but I don't picture you guys, but maybe like when you had a conversation, like you were both introverts and so it didn't totally spark like it did with John, but you actually, yeah, you're very parallel, you and George. It's yeah. true. Sometimes oh, yeah. when people are very similar, they end up not hitting it off in a way, right? As much. Well, yeah, it was certainly never the case of anybody I ran into there. I in in where did I write the story about the, the kids chasing me around in the car listening to the radio? George Harrison's in Corpus Christi. Oh, in, uh, yeah. in Infinite Tuesday. That's in Infinite Tuesday. Get Infinite Tuesday. Where is that an, in print? You can get it on uh, Amazon. And everything. Oh yeah, it, uh, I call it an autobiographical riff. It, yeah, <laughs> it's a at all. Uh, I like that. Uh, uh, stores, uh, bookstores. Uh, I don't think it's made it to the airports yet, but maybe. <laughs> Hudson Books. 
Um, okay, so but George has been absent on this record. Uh, I, th I think he's been in India, like literally, literally and, learning the sitar. and in his and in his mind. I think he's you know I think he's sort of going through this sort of spiritual, cultural transformation where he's sort of, you know, not as engaged in the pop songwriting well, and more into like learning about Indian music. This and song, culture and, this is my favorite of the Indian George songs. I mean. From my, you know, from love to you, this one, the inner light. Uh, is there another one that I'm not thinking of? This song's fucking cool to me, and it's dark. It's got, I think, it's got great, great lyrics. Um, it's long. It's like a. It's probably one of the longer Beatles songs. It's like almost five minutes. Um, <clears throat> Any thoughts? I I think it's cool. I don't have much to say except that I think it's cool. I know that there was a challenge uh, to have the Indian instruments and the Western strings and um, you know more traditional accompaniment work together, and that was sort of the the way figuring out how those two things were going to blend together. But I think it sounds. Uh, I think they nailed it. Sounds great. Not my favorite. <laughs> well, they also he he blends the violins and cellos in the yeah. too, right? There's like a string set. Yeah, the strings are really cool. Okay, John doesn't want to hear any more of this. <clears throat> We've all. I mean crazy when you think about how commercially successful this album was with songs like that on it, you know? <laughs> and this is the start of side B. I hear it. So you flip <laughs> over you flip I, over I, side I, B and you get this for five minutes. It's it crazy. was turning people on. You know, they were really uh getting their minds blown by this stuff, I guess. Well they were like, you know, when I when I was walking the streets and out to the occasional dinner party, I never heard anything about it. Not ever. Not the Beatles or this or that. It was the, the discussions of pop culture and what was It had more to do with a kind of uh, pulse, an artistic pulse that went through the whole culture, that the whole culture was uh, just listening to. It was a, the beat of a different drummer. Yeah. It was changing. And it, and it was a, um, but, but there wasn't any, I can't stress this enough. There was really no competitive urge on the streets to be more outrageous in dress and outlandish in ideas and so forth. That wasn't going on like it was going on in the streets of L.A. or the streets of San Francisco. Right. You know, the competitive edge from rock and roll, I think, maybe came from the South, maybe came from San Francisco, maybe came from LSD, but I don't think it came from British rock and roll. <clears throat> now, I... Uh, I have a theory that I that I now look looking at the track listings has become more uh, has hardened now, and John, I'll be curious to see what you think of this. On Revolver, the last record, you have George's Indian flavored um, "Love to You," which is very love you uh, too. Love you too. Sorry, love you too, which is a bit dark, very um, a lot darker, I think, than even with within you, without you. Goes from that song into here, there, and everywhere from Paul. Mm -hmm. 
And now we go from within you, without you, to when I'm 64. And I have this feeling that Paul was like, yeah, we'll give you the uh, the little dark, you know, Indian music. But after that, we're going to lighten things up quite a bit, you know. We're going to put a little bit of uh, a smile on the face, you know. That's my, that's my like, Paul I mean, conniving with the track listings. He's got that entertainer's instincts. <laughs> we've got to bring it back up, you know. Um, so that does bring us to when I'm 64. <laughs> John's favorite song. Now, you know, this is a song that Paul wrote when he was like 16, I believe. Yeah. Correct? When I get older, losing my head, it's cute. It's, I mean, there's a time in your life for this. When I was a kid, I loved this song, and there is a video of me singing it a cappella at like a confirmation of my nephew or some or my my cousin when yeah. I was a kid. And uh, but you now know, I, I I don't have much of a taste for it these days. You know what? There, when that Imagine video started going around like last month, you know that when Gal Gadot put out her Imagine video and everybody was shitting on it, and they were shitting on it for good reason, but then people started going after the song Imagine. And my issue with that was, well, somebody said like, you know, it's 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 uh it's deep for a ten year old or something, you know. I was like, but ten year olds need deep shit. Yeah, you know, like that's in like that is resonant. Like it's going to be resonant for people at different parts of their life. And like that's what's great about the Beatles is they like work into your life, work into your life at all kinds of different uh, periods. Um, and also at the, at the time, like, you know, that's, that was also deep for like a song that they played on the radio. Like if it was even allowed to be played on the radio. Yeah. I mean, the idea of like these young rockers list, talking about growing old and, and what, what their life is going to be like when they're older, you know, that's, oh, I was talking about imagine. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're talking well, about when I'm 64. Well, yeah, there's, yes, you're totally I was right defending imagine, imagine again. Sorry. But, you know, musically it's, it's a bit it's a, it's on the trajectory of paul's kind of granny music hall style music that yeah this like, is classic granny like john granny song. john levenstein said you know it's hard to, for us to relate to but there is a tradition there side two is a bummer so far you guys <laughs> <laughs> well it's like they put in a song for kids on the last record with the yellow submarine and this is a song for like your grandparent it yeah i don't know does They're this do, something, something for everyone did anyone care with the, about this song Mike, like that it was kind of not cool or was not whatever, like it wasn't a rocker? Well, I, I won't say that the discussion of it sucked the air out of the room, but <laughs> it get a little hard to breathe every once in a while. It's, 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 <laughs> finally, a word of criticism of the Beatles. Yeah, so looks like we have our first 99. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyways, we got through it. Side two is chugging along. We've got after, you know, and we got another Paul song here with Lovely Rita. Passable. I give it a 99. Cool production. Love that, Love that vocal at the very top. Yeah. Another, I don't know. Do you guys have a perspective? I was talking about this with Revolver. Is like the influence of of Ray Davies and the Kinks, talk uh, being that somebody that wrote songs about sort of working class or work, you know wrote songs that were a little more like pedestrian. Pedestrian is not the right word, but sort of 
little short story kind of things. I feel like this is a continuation of that. Um, other than that, I don't know. They're just looking for stuff to, to sing about. I feel like Paul's doing a, a Lennon impression on this. Oh, Especially totally. That opening, that opening voice that sounds like it's Lennon, but it's Paul. That... All right. I'm realizing I like back in the day when I would actually play this album, I would almost always listen to side one. You would not, not flip her over. But if you, I flip her over, I wouldn't start with the first three songs. Aha. Uh-huh. You'd get right to uh, the good stuff at the, the, the big finale. So, I would. So uh, apparently um, I found the two songs they would have cut from this record. If they had been able to put strawberry fields and penny lane on it, they were going to cut lovely Rita. And when I'm 64, <laughs> So, John, you would have loved that decision. Fantastic. I mean, that's a that would, have a, been a, that would have been a classic album. So, if an, the Beatles had their way, these songs wouldn't have been on there and you would have had Strawberry Fields and Penny. That's amazing. That's amazing you that blame they didn't the label. Get, that's, that, that, that's amazing to think that the Beatles didn't get to put out the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band that they wanted to. Yeah. I wonder if they could have really fought for it if they put their foot down, or if they were just like, you know, it's it'll be good for sales. Right. I wonder. I mean, we uh, should say Strawberry Fields Forever. I mean, absolutely ma- majestic piece of songwriting and production. It's insane. One it's of my favorites. Crazy, of crazy, crazy. And there's a whole video on on YouTube if you look it up about the edit in that song, where they had oh, to yeah. they had to change. They, there's two different versions. There's two different versions of the song that were recorded at a different tempo at a different key. They combined them. Um, using all kinds of wacky, you know, kind of DIY systems in their mixing room, and you can, if you if you watch the video, you can you you hear it where it happens, and it's it's really really remarkable, and, and you'll never hear it the same way again. But um, and Penny Lane is is a great track too. It sounds so bright and and beautifully recorded. It's too bad we have, we have to live with lovely Rita. Um, good morning, good morning. Great horns. I don't know. Again, Lennon said that he was that he was inspired by a Kellogg's uh, cornflakes commercial to write this song. Right. Great um, time signature work going on here, right? Yeah. A lot, a couple changes. This song is insane. Like this, it's so crazy. Listen to the bass. You hear the what the bass is, is doing? Wild. Yeah. It's so. It's like it's like a heavy metal bass player. It's one of the like craziest bass lines in the Beatles' history. Boom. I love the rhyme of doing with ruin. Yeah. We're not really talking about the lyrics here because, like, again, it's sort of these. Uh, it's not as introspective, but it's just some clever, clever stuff going on for sure. Um, wordsmithy kind of like play on plays on words and everything. So that's a song about not about like domestic boredom a little bit, I would say, right? Or at least being in a rut. He's got Mike Nesmith staying over. You know, it's like. <laughs> Can you get out of the way? I'm trying to get this get to the cereal here, dude. Lennon called it a jobber. He was like, "This is oh, one of, it was like I'm gonna, know, when he when he when he th- like uh, throws any of his songs under the bus. He's like, that was a jobber. That was just a 
He's no, the most unreliable. Song. But he's the most unreliable narrator about about his own work, right? Because all those interviews he did in the '70s, where he was just throwing everything under the bus for right. I don't know amusement or boredom or just kind of a bad. You know, he's at a place where he had not the greatest perspective on his own work, maybe. But he was really down on so much of their work at periods of times that. And, you know, but I feel like that way sometimes. Like you know, there's a lot of work that you're proud of, but also like I'll watch something that I worked on that all I'm thinking of is like, well, I wish I had done that. I wish we had a little extra time to shot one more take of that, or you know, yeah. he's probably just seeing all the little mistakes and thinking of how he could have done better. So uh-huh. how much? How long after this did he meet Yoko? Well, probably this later this year. Same year, okay. He would have met her, but I don't. Th- it took them a little bit of. Uh, little while before they actually like became a couple um you want to play this bass line just to hear what's going on yeah i I don't really know how to play it but i'm gonna try um it's cool and then it goes and does a There's a little like uh, Paul kind of uses that pentatonic stuff with uh, Lady Madonna again. Mm-hmm. Lady Madonna. So it's the same line basically. It's a hack. What a hack. Just sounds good. It's cool. Uh, then we get the reprise of Sgt. Pepper's. No real, nothing to really remark on there, except that great audio edit of the the rooster. Wait, alter- alternate between the top of uh, of this song and Good Morning, Good Morning. Okay. Yeah. A couple of birds. <laughs> birds and birds. And then the end of Good Morning, Good Morning has a bird that well, also... Like, play it play it from the end of Good Morning, Good Morning and straight into the beginning of okay. Pepper 2. Well, the one thing I know about this was as they were building these animal sounds, they were trying to... One, the animals were supposed to get bigger, so it was like this animal could eat this animal, and that animal could like. Right. Oh, did I miss what you're trying to get to? You're on loop, I think. Oh, I'm on loop. Yeah. Also, it seems like it might have been a subtle nod or in joke about pet sounds, maybe, right? Because there's so much talk about pet sounds being influential in this record. It couldn't had to have been on their minds. All right, this is the big one. This is the session. Our guest, our special guest, I want to thank my special guest, Mr. Mike Nesmith, for being here for this journey. I hope it's been somewhat of an enjoyable experience for you, sir. No comment. No, no, I'm commenting away. I'm just waiting for all the sonics to get in order. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is the song. You were at the session. You were part of history here. We're going to play a little bit of it and talk about it. Can I, is it us? Is it our experience with this song, or is it something implicit that exists in those first thirty seconds, or whatever? Where, or the, I'm looking at it's about ten seconds. Does it feel really heavy right away? Well, I don't know ex- exactly what you're talking about. Like it, it just has a it has a mood to it. Like just it's just pian- it's just acoustic guitar and piano, but it just it well, feels uh, it feels uh, heavy. There's air. Uh, there's like an anticipation. I understand what you mean. Yeah, yeah, you could. You'd say that that's a that's a incredible 
uh, critique. Yeah. Um, it's It's an incredibly sad sounding song to me. Yeah, it's dark. Yeah. yeah. Well, the first half is. Yes. Bass is doing, again, so much work here. Very busy. I saw the photograph. Ringo saying, guess what? I'm in this band, too, by the way. <laughs> I just kind of want to listen to this whole song. I mean, I know it sounds like shit on, on your end over there, guys. I apologize. So, Mike, at the, at the session you were at for this, had had the, a lot of the work been done on the song already? So you yeah, were able it, to hear it? Yeah, it was complete. And what were they doing that you were there I for? Said, I say it was complete. You know, I, I couldn't, I can't parse that out in my head. Right. But it sounded complete. And, you know, the only comment that John had to me was how did the bass sound? Uh, really? Mm-hmm. Was he worried that the bass was too loud? That like Paul was <laughs> I cranking the bass up, and it was no. I I, I I'll never know. I, hmm. I, so, but you guys were. What were you gonna? What were you there at the studio to do? Were you there just to hear it? Were they playing it for everybody? No, I I got wind that they were going to go in. I was going to be there anyway, and that's when I started putting it together. But that only took you know four or five days, and then I was there. So. It was, it, you know, just took a little bit of effort, but not much. So is the orchestra part, had the orchestra had been done already? This big climax that's coming up, that was in there already? Well, no, that hasn't been done yet. Okay. My, my, I, think, I think this was the last day of the session. Um, I mean, John Levenstein, this is nine, they're, they're recording this early 1967. <clears throat> 65 three years earlier they're playing like i want to hold your hand which is a great song but the jumps that this band made in three years is is there anything like it in pop culture that you can think of that's anything like that not not off the top of my head um here's a question for you though i mean as far as the song the production value and everything john's voice like going back to help an album i love he started like he was filtering his voice more here, right? Like he's mm -hmm. playing with his voice more. Yes. I don't know on this particular song what's happening. It's from it's, a performance standpoint or from like a post-production or like, I don't know. Standpoint. I don't know which, but sometimes his voice, it seemed to me like he, he was singing with confidence on help and yeah. here, like his voice always sounds good, but I can't always there. Sometimes there's like other forces at work and I can't really tell always what's him what's production value what's going on exactly it, it could be that automated double tracking that was that definitely will make his voice sound a little different let me but... hear it again for just real quick jets i gotta take a step away all right sir <clears throat> thanks for joining michael yeah yeah mike we'll let you go we'll let you go are you leaving for good we just want to say goodbye or are you coming back we'll see maybe who's coming back this may have been goodbye no, no, i'm coming i'm uh, coming back okay Can you see me yet yeah, okay. We'll we'll uh we'll wait for you or we'll continue. I'll come back to button everything up. Okay, that sounds good. 
Here, I'll do a little bit of that bass. Wait, wait. I understand. Go ahead, Eric. Did you guys hear? Yeah, we're good. You're rushing, Eric. You're rushing. <laughs> anyway, it's cool. It's cool. It's a little busy. You know, let me just say while we've while we don't have Michael here, I think the three of us, I, Eric, and I talked about this. That this is a to us, it feels like an overrated record. Generally, as people that love the Beatles, it's not our. It's not my favorite Beatles record. It has a lot of my a lot of great songs on it. A lot of songs I would. It's got some high highs. It's got some high highs. This is one of them. But you know, it's it became a whole big deal that I don't know. I don't know, and I understand why it was a big deal, but I don't know that it plays as well as some other records play now. No, I agree, and I think part of what Michael seems to be talking about what was going on in London at the time was a whole experience that was bigger than the record that then people projected onto the record. Yeah, 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 and um, it's just. It, they, they just the more I think about that that group, the more you know. You just it 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 never it never stops to kind of amaze me that that not only were they so good and so talented, and that it connected with so many people, but they were so sly to to move forward, and they moved forward in the right ways that didn't alienate their fans. I mean, I'm sure it alienated they, some people, but it also brought in people. They didn't turn off. They always well, kept these pop sensibilities. They had these like sort of rules that they, you know, they would break a lot of rules, but they would also follow a lot of rules, I think, that kept people engaged. Like they, you know, their songs still, a lot of them were like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, yeah. even though that, you know, they might be super experimental in other ways. Right. And like, you know, they still had this incredible sense of melody and harmony that even in their most experimental songs, they would still have that stuff that would, keep you interested and keep you on board. Yeah, they you never could. rebelled. It's like the Beatles kept expanding their sound, but there wasn't a moment like Dylan going electric or the birds going electric right. where it was divisive for their fans. Exactly. Like yeah. Beatles went along for the ride. I mean, yeah. there was probably like, if you went back, you could probably find people writing articles about like, oh, the Beatles have mustaches now, you know, how could they? It's all boys. You know, there's, I'm sure there was that happening and, there, I think if you look back in the contemporary pop press, there was always an angle of like the Beatles have lost their edge or now or their old news. You know, there was always that happening. There was always that chatter that probably happens, you know, uh, would have happened no matter what was going on. But they they made um, they made just great choices. Yeah. I mean, not perfect. No one's perfect. But um, and you also can't experiment without you know, having some failures. So like, you're, you know, there's going to be songs where, you know, you're, you're automatically, you're not going to hit it out of the park every time if you're experimenting and innovating. So there's going to be these stinkers. There's going to be clunkers. Right. And by the way, I don't know what was happening the day that Michael was at the day in the life session, but I didn't want to press. No, I, I mean, there's video, there's a film of them. Like it's kind of a big party. Um, so it, exactly. Yeah, I wonder if they. Were I thought it was when they did the orchestra, but I think so too. I, it must have been when the orchestra was there. Yeah. All right, um, I gotta say goodbye too now, you oh, guys. And, okay, John. Goodbye to Michael. Thank you so much for having me. You guys can take it home. You can. Yeah, well, I want to thank I want to thank John Levenstein a for being a guest. 
Um, and I always enjoy your perspective, even though you're not as knowledgeable about the Fab Four as Eric and I. But that's not what we want. We don't want a bunch of, you know, uh, too many cooks in the kitchen of all the boring details and uh, trivia. I want somebody that is a point of view. And that's what you provided. But you also gave us one of the biggest guests I could ever imagine getting to talk about this band, Mike Nesmith. Michael, thanks for coming along for the ride. It was certainly my pleasure. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, Mike. Thank you. And same thank you, here. Michael. So you got a good show going there. I think podcasts are the future. Yeah, it's fun. It's easy. You could just get get a couple of mics, talk for a while, and and throw it up on the internet. And if you want to listen, you can. Obviously, people are listening to this right now, so we appreciate yeah. it. Thanks well, again. Stay so safe. Take care. Bye, Michael. Thanks, Bye. guys. I'm going to... Yeah, you guys can shut off. Eric, we'll wrap up. Cool. Thanks, John. <laughs> that was awesome. Wow, that was cool. That was a major. I mean, I don't, I'm just going to let it all roll. Who cares? Yeah. It's fine. It's a little long-winded in places, but I, that's that's kind of the... the uh, that's the appeal. It's the appeal. The podcast. We're Although, just hanging uh, out. Did you, see, did you see John's text? Yeah, I know. He was worried. I think he was worried <laughs> that it was rambling a little too much. Well, but, uh, have you listened to his podcast? John Levenstein's? Yeah. The John Levenstein Retirement Party? No. It's really it's really good. But what's so interesting about it is that it's heavily edited. It's edited as if it was like a TV show. So it's like very, very tight. Uh-huh. Unlike, which is like the opposite, I feel like, of most podcasts. Right. So um, I like that he's already thinking about that. Well, <laughs> I hope he's not expecting us to do much work on this. Um, yeah. And since we are still rolling, we'll just include all this too. I'm not going to go back and lose your comments about his podcast. I think it's a positive thing that you've said about yeah. his podcast. I love it. Yeah, it's John I recommend it to anyone listening. It's John, John Levenstein's, Levenstein's retirement, retirement party. party. I think I did a live version of that. I think I'm on it in some place in some episode. Um, any other, any final thoughts on Sergeant Peppers? I know that, like this wasn't your typical please please let it be episode, um, but I was pretty. I don't know. I want to give myself credit for handling my interview with Mike Nesmith pretty uh, admirably. I think. I thought you did a great job. And he noted. Wait, I, I enjoyed was, listening to. You know, it was funny as your your voice went like, like to be. Your voice went like into weird Zoom crackle territory when you said that. Oh, really? So it sounded like this. I think you did a good job. Like <laughs> it sounded. <laughs> no, really that's scary. how. That's how I said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how. No, I, talk I mean, now. I it was not. A, it was no softball interview. No, and and I I loved hearing the stories of someone that was not only there when the record came out, which we haven't had yet, but someone yeah. that was there when the record was made. I know. Unbelievable. Um, I'm going to ask Fred to do the white album with us, I think. Yeah. Are we splitting into two parts? It's again, you sound drunk when I, it's so funny. Should um, we split it into two parts? Yeah, definitely. Two episodes. Two episodes. Fred but both? that's not what's coming next. What's coming next is Magical Mystery Tool. Yeah. Which is just an EP. But I mean, we all know it as an LP because it featured a fair amount of singles that they- Are we doing Yellow do. Submarine at all? We have to. Okay. And I had this vision if somebody- <laughs> Is somebody dares once this vision of like an animation of us walking down this um, <laughs> hallway, going past all the albums, and we see Yellow Submarine, the album, like in the distance, and it's like haunting us because it's it's the one we don't want to do. You're gonna have to do it, but, but we, we, we have talk to talk about this, Strawberry Fields. Well, but that's on uh, Magical Mystery Tour. It's also on the Yellow Submarine 
soundtrack. What oh, I love about the Yellow Submarine, which is I'm excited to talk about, is it's all too much. That's one of my favorite Beatles oh, songs yeah, of all yeah, time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, you're right. There's Magical some fun. There's there's that. there's enough to talk about there. It'll you know be what sh- I like to talk about is Hey Bulldog. Hey Bulldog is a lot one of, of my fun favorite too. underrated. I think underrated track. It's a rucka. Um, all right, but we'll get to that when we get to it. So thanks again. Thanks to Mike Nesmith and John Levenstein, and thank you, Eric. Um, we'll talk soon. Peace and love. Thank you. Peace and love. Never could be 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 never could be